Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome back to the History of Video Games. My name is Wes, and I am here, as always, with the wonderful Ben. How you doing today, Ben? I'm doing pretty good. How are you, Wes? I'm doing great, and having a great time in video game land, you know? <laughs> oh, uh, well, don't brag about it, Wes. <laughs> <laughs> I've been playing three shows this weekend, so oh. I have not had a lot of time for games, but Luckily, I still have one game in the backlog I can talk about. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, I'd love to hear about it. Well, the reason I haven't brought this one up yet is because it was probably the most uneventful one. But I do have a couple thoughts on it. I ended up going back and beating Fable. I don't know if you remember, but a long time ago, like a couple months ago, I beat the main game, but there was still a DLC that I could play. Oh, that's right. And yeah. I finally... Uh, had time to go back and uh, wanted to wrap that up just to say that I did it. So um, I really wasn't sure going into it what it would be like because the main game I beat in 15 hours is an RPG and it was like one of my main things I didn't like about the game it was just so short so I thought oh my god a DLC that could be like an hour long you know <laughs> comparatively. But I was kind of surprised it took me about four or five hours to beat the DLC which wasn't too bad. You know, it's like a third of the game. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the DLC had some content to it, which was good. Nice. And uh, it was, I thought, a lot more like streamlined of a story. It only focused on a couple characters instead of you meeting a bunch of random people that you never meet again. It was kind of the same characters that came up in all the quests and introduced a couple new enemies I think I got a new helmet and a new sword, but I don't think I got any other new gear <laughs> uh, throughout the whole DLC, which was a little disappointing. But you went to a new area, an ice area. I, I found out afterwards that the DLC is pretty much content that they cut from the main game because they didn't have time to put it in the main game. So it really felt just like an extension of the main game. <laughs> the one thing I do really like, I have to definitely mention... I like it a lot is that the last boss of the DLC is actually the last boss of the game. Oh. When you beat the last boss of the main game, I thought that was the end, but then in the DLC it's like, oh no, like he's not actually dead. You just killed his human form and now he's a big dragon. <laughs> okay. So I kind of didn't like the last boss of the main game cuz it kind of just felt underwhelming. But this time it was like, okay, I'm playing the same guy again, so I already have history with him. They made his backstory a little bit more fleshed out. And uh, the final fight now was like against a big dragon and like a volcano. <laughs> so it was like, okay, this felt a lot more satisfying when I beat him the second time. So I think that really helped. If they had brought in a new character and tried to make some sort of backstory in a five-hour DLC, it just wouldn't have worked. Right. But, uh, this actually worked pretty well. So I, I really like that they brought the main villain back. So that was a nice wrap up to it. Maybe something again that I don't like from the game. It has an alignment system. And I don't know about you, Wes, but for alignment for me, I kind of like I feel like a good alignment system should be like you making somewhat gray decisions, like on the line decisions, and it kind of just spirals in one way or the other. But in this game, it's like 
Okay, do you want to walk across the map and kill a bunch of monsters, or do you want to murder this old lady in cold blood right in front of you? <laughs> it just felt like such a like black and white decision. It just doesn't feel good, like either way. I just don't like the alignment system in the first Fable game. It just doesn't really make sense to me, and it's just not well implemented in my opinion, but... I don't know, maybe other people would disagree, but it was very, I felt like it really wanted me to go evil in the DLC. It oh, was like, nice. hey, go across the map or kill your friend right beside you right now. <laughs> like, okay, guy. But uh, yeah, it was pretty good. I thought I enjoyed going back and I did it in two settings, but I thought it was a decent DLC. I'm glad I, I went back and played it, although I still think the game has a lot of problems. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's me beating uh, the Fable DLC. I forget what the DLC is called. But. Well, it's nice that it made it a bit more of a complete experience for you, too, since the first main game, you just kind of felt like, is that it? Like, <laughs> You're right. <laughs> yeah, it's called uh, the Lost Chapter DLC. So if oh, you have yeah. the game, you might as well play the Lost Chapters. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it was all right. Cool. Um, but... With that now being done, I don't have like any backlog anymore, Wes. You're just going to have to find out what I'm actually playing next week. <laughs> oh, man. And given how many shows you've been doing recently, who knows? Depends if you got the time. But <laughs> mm-hmm. so what have you been playing? Well, so in what, what seems like a rarity for me, I have completed an open world RPG. Whoa. I finished Horizon Zero Dawn. Yeah, but are you going to go back and play it more, Wes? I'm thinking about it, you know, (laughs) it's a weird, it it definitely, you know, it's like watching a big series, a TV show. When you finish it, sometimes you're just like, well, what do I do now? Like, (laughs) I was so into the world of Horizon Zero Dawn that now I'm just like, what else is going to scratch that itch? So (laughs) you're going to have to go out and buy a PS5, Wes. I know. That's what it seems like. (laughs) Still uh, no news of Horizon forbidden west being ported but fingers crossed i'm sure it'll come eventually but maybe we'll see if i subject myself to the punishment of beating new game plus on ultra hard to get that steam achievement but (laughs) but i do have to say something nice about the new game plus you literally carry everything over all of your skill unlocks your levels your gear the only thing that they do is lock some of the skills behind story contents and some of them don't make sense until Aloy has gotten a certain piece of equipment or whatever but mm-hmm. you already spent all the skill points for him so i'm good there i, I kind of like that i don't know how scaled up the enemies are going to be but hopefully all the awesome end game loot i have will be a crutch for me as i go through new game plus ultra hard <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but we'll see but i want to talk about the end of the game with as little spoilers as i can manage the total like final mission last sequence of battles very very cool stakes are very high there's some great cinematics i mean it's a beautiful looking game and i most of the cinematics are in game i think there's definitely some that are not though but all of them look fantastic and you just got giant robots fighting a whole bunch of people in some weird like i don't know what you'd call it like junkyard kind of 
cannons that the tribal people have made, and it's super fun. But I have to say, the final boss battle, very disappointing. Uh, oh. <laughs> the whole sequence was fun, and this is a slight gameplay spoiler, but the final boss, they didn't add a new enemy or anything. You know, it was something you'd fought before, except slightly different. And that to me was a big, I don't know, missed opportunity. I felt like they could have done some kind of grand scale gimmick boss, and I would have been super happy with it. You know, like something that just looks gigantic, but really it's just shoot these glowing points to beat it. I would have been totally fine with that. But instead it was, I don't know, just a little anticlimactic. The cutscenes were all great, and I love the way the story wrapped up and left a lot to explore in the next game. But yeah, I was just a little underwhelmed by that. I do think there's kind of a bunch of enemies that throughout the game are sort of on the level of like boss fights. And I do like how they have those designed. So these enemies are just out in the world. So you can just randomly find them and fight them. And they're these super epic experiences. But then also they weave them into side quests where something you fought before will be the final monster machine that you have to fight at the end of the side quest. It works really well for that. But yeah, it didn't work so well when it just kind of felt a little recycled again for the final boss. Right. But that is kind of me just being very nitpicky about it because overall the whole experience of the game was just super good. I mean, one of the best RPGs I've ever played. I love the story. There's definitely some goofy stuff that breaks you out of your suspension of disbelief a little bit, but I just fell into that world so easily. And I'm restraining myself from looking things up since the second game is already out. And I really don't (laughs) want spoilers because I somehow managed to go into this one blind and it was a fantastic experience. So for anyone who hasn't played Horizon Zero Dawn, it goes real cheap on Steam if you're a PC player got it for $16 I think when I picked it up and it is absolutely worth the time I think with the DLC and the main game I ended up playing 75 hours of it uh, for a single playthrough that's like the perfect amount for me yeah yeah no it was perfect there's actually like a statistics tracker in the menu and I think I was like 90% completion of the DLC and 95% completion of the main game. I was like, that's good enough for me because I'm not finding all the weird collectible things in all the corners of the maps that don't show up on the mini map, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was super fun. Highly recommend it for anyone to check it out. Very cool. Yeah. But with that being said, let's move things over to the history of video games and start talking about our special topic for the day. We have two things here. The first is just a little bit of a small update. We're going to be talking about a game for the Astrocade today, but the Astrocade is in a bit of a weird place in 1980. Uh, I feel like it's kind of disappeared, Wes. What happened? Well, let me tell you. (laughs) Sometime in 1979, Ali decided that basically they weren't interested in the home arcade market or home console market anymore. And they sold their consumer products division and basically stopped all development of Astrocade console and games. And just as a side note, we call it the Astrocade all the way through 1979. 
it was called the Bally Professional Arcade. Astrocade will sort of be the rename of it later down the line. But around the time that Bally got rid of their consumer products division, there was also this company called Astrovision Incorporated that was having difficulty kind of bringing their own console to the market. So eventually the former consumer products division from Bally and Astrovision linked up and became one company. And eventually in the year 1981, next year, they're going to be bringing the Astrocade back to life. But for the time being, except for this one game that we're going to be covering in the timeline, it's kind of dead. <laughs> <laughs> Which kind of sucks because it was like, I mean, the only console that has better specs than it is the Intellivision, but that like hasn't officially released yet. Or it didn't when they closed the Astrocade stuff. Down. Right. Yeah. But it just feels kind of weird. Yeah. I think what I read is that it was just too expensive for what people were getting from it. Mm-hmm. The Astrocade is also marketed as being able to like work as a computer with this basic language cartridge that it had. So I think it had a lot of capabilities, but at the time people just weren't really looking for that. They'd rather have an Atari VCS basically. But we will have to keep our eye on it because this isn't the end for the Astrocade, just a uh, little bit of a hibernation for it. Yeah, we will uh, check out the one game that did come out in 1980 in the timeline for today. But from one console to another, Wes, today we're going to be covering the very last games of the Supervision 8000. This might be a console that even listeners of the podcast don't remember, but... Uh, it's a second-generation home console. Uh, we've only talked about it twice before on, on the podcast. It came out at the end of last year with only one game on it called Missile Vader, which was a Space Invaders game. It's a console by Bandai and is also known as the TV Jack 8000. I believe it was a competitor to the Atari 2600 in Japan. That's what they were going for with it. And the specs were really weird with it. It had an amazing CPU running a NEC chip, which is a Nippon Electronics chip. But uh, essentially the chip is just a Z80 clone. So it essentially has a Zilog Z80, which is like a very popular personal computer level CPU inside this home console. And it had a pretty good resolution with it as well. However, it only had two colors, <laughs> which was like a white and blue. <laughs> and that really is not good. Considering the, the 2600 can do, I think, 16 colors. So that was not great. And already it's going to be over. Uh, the last three games come out by the end of 1980. And we're going to talk about them on the timeline today. I wanted to really quick give a bit of a wrap up of it. There's only been seven games in total ever released for this system. I think it's the first second generation console to come and go since I think the RCA Studio 3, which was like a couple years ago. So it's been a while since a home console has uh, been discontinued like this. As I mentioned, it started with Missile Vader. The other games uh, we covered in a previous episode include Space Fire, Othello, and Gun Professional, which was a gunfight game. And uh, they also advertise a game called Super Tank, but there's no evidence that that ever came out. And um, the last three games we're going to cover in the timeline. So I think we'll head right over there and we'll talk about them after this short break.
hello and welcome back. Let's continue with the three games I did not mention as I was talking about the end of the Bandai Supervision 8000. Um, the first one we have here is one called Submarine, which is a destroyer type sub sinking game. Um, it looked pretty good, but it seems to be pretty much just a complete ripoff of, I think, the Atari game Destroyer. Uh, so we've seen it before. Um, but these next two I haven't really seen before, and I, and I wanted to do a dual review for them. It was a pretty hard dual review, which I'll get into. <laughs> um, the first one is called Pack Pack Bird, and it sounds like it's related to Pac-Man, maybe, because yeah. there's two packs in it, but it actually has nothing to do with Pac-Man. <laughs> it's a weird game where you are a bird flying around eating bugs on screen. And uh, I just thought this one was so weird. At any one time, there's about four bugs going across the screen, and they have weird patterns where they're moving diagonal, side to side. There's sometimes screen wrap, sometimes they seem to bounce off the edges. I have no idea. I don't know if all four bugs behave in a certain way. It seems pretty random to me. And you are a bird, which does have a Pac-Man style mouth on it. <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> it's just chomping away at the front. It looks really weird. It kind of looks like a, a piranha plant from Mario, um, but it's got wings on the back and you just can fly around. But it's not like realistic flying. It's like pretty much just moving in four directions because you'll be there just completely upside down and just not moving. You're like, I don't know if that's how <laughs> that would work. <laughs> but um, you just fly around and try to get the bugs in your mouth. Interestingly, it does have what it calls, I think it says 16 game modes or maybe eight game modes. There's four game modes for one player and four game modes for if you're playing two player mode. I was not able to play two player mode, so I'm not sure if that's just a turn taking or if there's two birds on screen. But um, the four game modes are just four different levels of difficulty and the bugs move faster and that's it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so not really anything. And that's all this game is. I thought like when I was watching videos of it, I was like, Oh, this kind of looks cool. And then I played it and I was like, this is nothing. <laughs> um, but that's completely the opposite to the next game. And the last game released for the Bandai supervision, what a game to go out on. It's called beam Galaxian. So their first game was a Space Invaders clone. This is a Galaxian clone. And I think it's the first ever Galaxian clone we've seen on a home console. I don't think it's we've ever had any Galaxian ripoffs on a home console up until this point. And it actually plays really good. <laughs> uh, the invaders at the top, they do come down at you in these swooping patterns. I don't know how they did it on a home console, but it looks really good. The frame rate is really high. And um, the sound effects on it are really good as well. It, it doesn't do anything special. It's, you know, just a version of Galaxian pretty much. But it just runs and plays really well. Um, obviously, the graphics are a lot more minimal because you only have those two colors, blue and white. There is some pink on the sprites, but I think it's just the areas where, like, the blue and the white are kind of meeting. But... I really liked the Galaxian game. There is like some weird tile-based something going on because like sometimes the uh, invaders will cross each other and only one of them will appear and the other one will like block the the sprite behind it out. <laughs> so it, it's kind of weird. It's kind of like outside of the sprite, like it's on a larger 
square of some kind. So if the corners of the square go over another sprite, it will cover it, even though the actual invader isn't over it, if that makes sense. But it, it kind of makes it so that there's weird, like, clipping happening, essentially. So that's kind of a weird thing, but it's only there if you really pay attention to it. Honestly, the game just runs so well that you don't notice. So I thought Beam Galaxian was on a really good version of Galaxian, considering it's the first I've ever really seen on a home console. So that one was completely opposite of Pack Back Bird. So rating them together was kind of hard. <laughs> <laughs> but let me get into the ratings. Let's start out with the gameplay. I mean, Beam Galaxian really carried it for me. I ended up giving it a 2.75 out of 10. Um, I didn't let Pack Pack Bird bring it down too much because just because I thought Beam Galaxian was so good. It, I mean, it really feels like a version of Galaxian at home that you can just play forever. And uh, there's only a one and two player mode with no difficulty settings. And the two player mode is just you taking turns. So it's not the best, but just the way that the enemy ships fly down at you. I guess they move more in diagonal patterns than a full kind of circular swooping pattern, but it just has a really nice effect, and the movement of them is really fast, really responsive on the controls, and uh, there are different patterns that they can come down at you at. There's three different sprites of the ship. I don't know, like, all in all, it just felt like a really solid version of Galaxian, which only came out a few months ago, really. Or I guess it's been nine months maybe or so at this point but still I, I just was really impressed with it so for gameplay i gave it a 2.75 mainly because of beam galaxian and pack pack bird it gets boring after like a couple minutes so <laughs> that one's not really anything for graphics i ended up giving it a two and a half out of ten despite the the limitations with the colors the amount of sprites on screen they're all moving they all have a little bit of animation to them even Pack Pack Bird is, is biting away and there's some animation, um, or not animation, but the, uh, the bugs move around in kind of nice ways, I thought. So even Pack Pack Bird, there's like clouds on the screen, I guess, to make you feel like you're in, uh, in the air. But it, despite the lack of colors, I just thought both games looked all right. I think the, the sprites just really do it, I guess. And the high resolution of this console maybe is the other thing. That really contributed to that. So, despite the lack of colors, I thought they both looked pretty good. Sound is another really hard one. On one hand, you've got Beam Galaxian, which sounds pretty much like Galaxian. I mean, it's it's, it's really good. Like the, from the shooting noise to the uh, the whirling noise when the ships fly down at you, it all sounds pretty much like Galaxian. Like even when stuff explodes, I just thought it was cloned on this console really really well and then on the other hand you've got pack pack bird which plays a very short musical tune throughout the entire uh game oh boy it sounds like it would be good but it's this <laughs> really high short tune and it just repeats forever and it just i mean if i was doing pack pack bird by itself i think i'd give it like a zero it's it's almost worse than just having no music <laughs> yeah, that's how annoying the sound effects were and whenever you get a bug it plays a little sound effect but i guess there's i don't know how many sound channels are on supervision but it stops playing the music <laughs> whenever you get a bug just for a second and plays a little different noise 
So the music's constantly being interrupted. It was so bad. <laughs> so I don't know. I ended up giving it a 2.25 because I think Beam Galaxian really saves it. But man, the music of Pack Pack Bird is so bad. It was a total mix there. I ended up giving both these games a total of a 6 out of a 10, mainly, again, because of Beam Galaxian. It's, I think it's the first ever Galaxian game on a home console, and man, is it so good. I was just really surprised. I really thought it would be like Space Invaders again, <laughs> with no real differences, but somehow it plays like Galaxian, it sounds like Galaxian, it's faster and responsive with no lag. I don't know, I just thought this is really good, so... I wanted to give it a little bit of points for being the first Galaxian game on a home console, despite that home console immediately failing after the game comes out. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I'm sure it still is sold for a while, but no other games will come out. So it's a great last one to end on, that's for sure. And overall, I gave these games a 2.75 out of 10. That is really for Beam Galaxian. I didn't really let Pack Pack Bird impact my ratings too much at all because I really like Beam Galaxian that much. I'm glad I looked at Pack Pack Bird, but uh <laughs> it's probably not one that you should pick up. It's probably one to see. <laughs> uh with bad gameplay and horrible sound effects. The sound effects are so bad in it, but there's actually in the options menu you can turn background music off, so, which I've never seen before. The, wow. They must have known it was to be bad. <laughs> I've never seen that option in any game we've ever done. So they must have known. They had to have known. But somehow Beam Galaxian is like, it feels like the pinnacle of this system. And uh, maybe it was so hard to make that they just knew that they couldn't do anything else with the system and they just decided to, sh to shut it down. I don't know why the supervision demise now. Um, I don't think it was ever going to last long without the color uh, graphic support, but it really feels like this is as good as it can get. And um, it was a, just a perfect one to end the system on. So with that being said, overall I gave them 2.75 out of 10. And uh, that is the end of the supervision 8,000 in the history of video games. So another one bites the dust, Wes. Yeah, and, and one by Bandai too. You know, it's a pretty mm -hmm. big company in the history of video games, but not everything's going to work out <laughs> that these yep. companies try. But hey, yeah, at least they pulled out all the stops with Beam Galaxian there at the end. Yeah, I thought so. so. But let's move on. We mentioned the Astrocade in the special topic. What was the one game that released this year, Wes? I know you took a look at it. Yeah, well, one game they released, if it was any good, you know, we had to do a review of it, and it's Dog Patch, which is a port of the 1978 arcade game of the same name, which I loved, so mm -hmm. had to review this one. 
midway game, I think, right? Yes. Yeah, it's a midway game. Um, and it's released in 1980 by Bally, but it will be re-released in 81 along with, uh, I think, a bunch of other games. We'll have to see when we get there, but when Astrovision actually kind of takes over the helm for the Astrocade. But let's talk about the gameplay for Dog Patch. It basically plays exactly the same as the arcade version, which is always great. The Bally Astrocade has been very good in the past at porting over midway arcade uh, cabinets and making them like a really great approximation of a console version of that game. And this is no exception in that sense. You have, just for everyone a reminder of what Dog Patch is, you have one person on either side of the screen with guns that you can aim freely uh, in 90 degrees, and then a ref in the middle that throws a can to one side or the other. And basically, you have to both shoot the can to try and knock it behind the other player. Unfortunately, one thing that isn't in this game that was in the arcade game is that uh, right before the beginning of a round, sometimes there would be a duck or a goose that would just go flying off towards the corner of the screen and you got bonus points if you shot him. As far as I could tell, no duck in this one. Uh, so no bonus points there. But other than that, the game is exactly the same. There's a bonus score that counts up in the middle of the screen as the can is being hit back and forth. Uh, that kind of makes each volley worth more the longer it goes. And so as it's counting up for the number of times that it's been hit back and forth, whichever player scores that round, they get the bonus points. Uh, so there's definitely some incentive to sort of keep it in the air for a while and then try to hit it over. Uh, but of course, a lot of risk too. And that's basically the whole game. You're just shooting this can back and forth with shotguns and uh, trying to get it over your <laughs> opponent's head and get the most points possible. Uh, it's a very simple game, but I loved the charm of the arcade cabinet. The arcade version actually had only black and white graphics, but a really nice color overlay. The theming is sort of hillbillies shooting a can of beans. It's just so ridiculous. Uh, I love mm -hmm. it. And so this does lose a little bit of that flavor, you know, because there's no overlay for this. But with that being said, let me start talking about the graphics. I'll just go into my rating there. It's a stark reminder of, even though the Astrocade is like one of the best consoles visually, it's still a home console and it definitely has limitations. Dog Patch looks really good, but I mean, the background is all white. And I'm just really missing that colored overlay of like an outhouse and a hill and all the crazy stuff that I had going on. But like I said, the original arcade cabinet was all white graphics for the characters on screen. And this obviously can do color. So that is a really nice change. The two different players are two different colors and they're pretty well detailed. You can tell they're wearing a hat and overalls or some kind of jumpsuit or something but you know they all have distinct colors the ref has his own distinct color as well the can is just a square uh, which is a little bit disappointing kind of just looks like a pong ball but it does move really smoothly across the screen which in a game as fast as dog patch is a really good thing because it's going to be flying all over the place and Really, one of the best things I can say about the graphics for this is that they were able to keep the buckshot in it, uh, which is 
Mm-hmm. One of my favorite parts of the original, you're not just shooting a single bullet, you're shooting a whole hail of buckshot that kind of goes up in a tight cone and can hit the can back and forth. Uh, so they keep that and it still looks great in this. Um, so, you know, it's a little bit of good and bad. The background's really bland, but there are some nice detailed elements in it. So I ended up giving it a 2.5 out of 10 for graphics. I feel like the characters are, uh, they're not looking as hillbilly. They look like city people to me. <laughs> I know when you can't oh, get the, the details in there for the, you know, like the pocket with like a handkerchief coming out of it. And one of the straps on the overalls falling off, mm-hmm. it doesn't work so great, but I'm pretty sure in the manual, which might've been for the re-release. Cause this had a pretty, the 1980 release was kind of like basically the cartridge in a plastic bag. It didn't, <laughs> I, th- I think you could tell that Bally didn't care too much about it at this point, but at least for the re-release, you know, they have a manual with proper hillbilly looking guys on it. So, okay. You just, you could use your imagination with that, but definitely, yeah, it's like, I don't know. They just kind of look a little bit like cowboys in this one. <laughs> but now let me move on to my sound rating for this. Unfortunately, I only gave it a 1.5 out of 10 here. I mean, it's the case with a lot of consoles right now, although apparently not the uh, Supervision. But on the Astrocade, it's still just a lot of beeps and slightly different tones, and that's kind of all that's going on. There's beeps for the guns firing, beeps for the can being hit, and a series of beeps when the bonus points are scored. And that's just kind of it. Um, Since it's such a fast game, it does mean that there's always kind of some sound going on. You can shoot really fast, the can gets hit a bunch, but none of the sounds are really that great. So it was okay. I was glad there were those sounds in there, but not as good as the sort of like, I think there was an almost metallic kind of can sound in the arcade version and again it just takes away that little bit of like flavor and theming when it doesn't have that in it but now for gameplay can it live up to the fun that i had with dog patch it's pretty dang close i gotta say this does a great job of emulating the original's gameplay. I mean, it may not have the same visuals or sounds, but it is fast and smooth and feels as fast as the arcade version, which is great because that's kind of the best part about it, in my opinion. You're shooting this cam back and forth super fast. The guns are responsive and you can fire them very, very quickly. The can is also easy to follow with your eyes, which is awesome uh, and some of the only complaints I really had about it is that I do feel like the original had a bit more vertical space to work with. So you could kind of bounce the can a bit higher. And I do miss the bonus duck flying across the screen that you can shoot. But this version on the Astrocade is still very fast and very fun. So I gave it a 2.75 out of 10 compared to, I think, the 3 out of 10 that I gave the original dog patch. I love uh, in this game, they have that bonus scoring where the longer the can stays up in the air the more points it's worth so like when you get those long volleys back and forth it becomes so tense because you do not want to be the one to lose it and uh it's kind of like a multiplier so yeah that's one of my favorite parts about i think it's such a great design decision it's a super fun gameplay mechanic i mean 
it creates that whole thing where like somebody could be winning five volleys in a row, but if they're short, one person wins one really long volley, it totally turns around the game. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I love that. And I do love that the scores like get up into the hundreds, you know, it's not like you're just scoring like one or five points. It's like, you got 50 points that round. It's really good. (laughs) Uh, but now for relevance, this, I mean, it's the port of an original game and it's on a dying console. So (laughs) (laughs) I just gave it a four out of 10 for relevance. I don't know how popular this would have been when it was released in that weird dark year for the Astrocade. Uh, so I don't think it's super notable, but I mean, that doesn't take anything away from the fact that it's a really good port, in my opinion. So overall, I left it with a 2.5 out of 10, mainly just getting knocked off on the points there for the sounds. The graphics and the gameplay, I think, were really good for a console, although, of course, not as great as the original. It's a super faithful port of the original game. I think it's a great game to have on a console because it's super fun to be playing with two people juggling the cans back and forth. And it's just a good time. I still love Dog Patch, even in this version. Hopefully we get a true sequel to it someday. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that is the only game that comes out on the Astrocade this year, which is sad because I think it was my favorite console of the year last year. Yeah. And now it's not going to get that again this year. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but we will see it again. It's not the end. So who knows? Uh, maybe Astrovision um, can make some good games on it. We'll just have to see. Uh, let's yeah. move on. We've got uh, just one arcade game here for you guys today. It's an honorable mention called Mole Hunter by Data East. And um, it's pretty much a melee combat game about whacking moles with a hammer. Sounds like something right up our alley, but this one was not emulated. And I think it was only on a flyer. So. Um, we couldn't really dive deep into it, even if we wanted to. Ah, it's a bummer. Sounds like a fun one. <laughs> but now let's take a look at a few handheld games. We have Space Laser Fight by Bambino, which was a VFD graphics shooting game. But, you know, it kind of felt like a fighting game in the way that you had to dodge and attack both high, medium, and low. Uh, so an interesting one there. And another handheld live action football by Kenner, uh, which was a football game that used LED sprites instead of dots, uh, which is nice. You know, always like when handhelds aren't just the red dots. And it seemed to feature a sort of trackball type input that you spin to move. Uh, But unfortunately, we only had an ad for it on YouTube, so we don't know all that much about this. I did watch the ad for it and... um... I love these old ads, man. They just go straight for the throat of their competitors. They're like, yeah. you remember playing those old ones with the red LED dot? That is so last year. You know? <laughs> just totally getting into Mattel's face there. So yeah, I, yeah. I love those old uh, commercials. Uh, but moving on, we've got two more uh, handhelds here. It's Computer Chess by Mattel and Computer Backgammon by Mattel. I wanted to mention them just because they're the smallest version of these games I've ever seen. You can play computer chess on a handheld and put that in your pocket, whereas before they were pretty much the size of an, an actual chessboard. So um, I thought that was kind of cool, considering it's like, you know, LCD or LED graphics on a calculator looking type thing. So yeah, it's it was funny. just interesting. I feel like those are two of the, the category of dedicated handhelds 
that are still around today. You know, you can go to a yeah. Walmart and buy like a little electric chess board. Uh, so that's pretty cool that Mattel was doing those all the way back then. Mm-hmm. All right, now let's start talking about some computer games. First one we have is Crazy Balloon. Uh, it's a version of the arcade game, but this one was on the Commodore Pet. Uh, it was just kind of okay though, and there was only one level for it. So, hey, cool to see it on the pet, but eh, you know. <laughs> I love Crazy Balloon though. Um, it's probably like, it's not one of my favorite games of the year, maybe, but it's definitely like a back pocket, just really good game I could break out anytime. It's the like uh, Meat Boy, there's spikes all around your balloon oh, yeah, game. Yeah, that's right. It's just so weird and different. Um, so, I like that one. But moving on, we've got an Oregon Trail type game here for the Commodore Pet. It's called Mount St. Helens by MJ Lansing. We know it came out sometime in 1980, and it's pretty much all text-based with no graphics, so I didn't want to cover it for that reason. But it had a very interesting setting where you were trying to essentially survive Mount St. Helens uh, exploding. You're like oh, on wow. the mountain, and then it explodes, and it's like turn one. And you're trying to get out before uh, getting crushed by the ash, I guess. Kind of weird, but it seemed cool. Yeah. But let's move on to the second game I rated today, Wes. This one was a very cool one. It's called Crown of Arthane. And when I first saw it, the only thing I saw was this is a hexed-based game with some graphics to it. And I thought, ooh, this could be really cool. Like a really big RPG or some strategy game. I wasn't sure exactly what kind of game it was with the hex-based tile system that it has going on. Um, it's kind of like an overworld where the parts of the overworld are split between these hex-based tiles, but I've never really right. seen any hex-based type thing that we've been able to play on the podcast before. So I got very excited about it. Turns out it's an RPG. So I was like, okay, that's cool. Um, it's actually a very short RPG. Uh, apparently you can beat it in under an hour. Oh, wow. <laughs> I wasn't expecting. But what's interesting about it is that the game is a two-player game. I guess the original intention was somebody wanted to create an RPG that was for two players that could play on the same computer at the same time, although it is turn-based. But uh, you don't have to like hide anything on the screen, so you could probably just both sit there and just take quick turns, I'd imagine. But for me, I could play against the computer-controlled opponent, so that's what I did. Um, and it's weird because half of the overworld map is like your side of the map and half of it is the opponent's side and there's mountains in the middle. And pretty much what the game is, is that it's a race to get the crown of Arthane. Apparently there is some Lord of this game. (laughs) Apparently I forget what your names are, but you and your opponent are the sons of an old king. The king banished you both from the kingdom for being like insubordinate or something. (laughs) Um, But all of his other heirs died. And so like on his deathbed, he said, whoever can find my crown first will become king. And so both you and the opponent are searching for the crown in this game and how to do that. There's, there's two main objectives you need to do. One is you have to find an elf who's going to tell you a password to the final door of the game. So you can get past the final door. And then you also have to find a dwarf 
he will tell you where the final dungeon is, and it's somewhere in the mountains that you can't normally go to. So you need both of those things in order to beat this game. There is a final boss at the game, which is a dragon, so whoever slays the dragon first will win. Um, but it feels a bit like a random game, because you don't know where the elf and the dwarf are. I don't know if they're mirrored. I think it would probably be more fair if they were, because then as soon as one person found it, the other person could find theirs quickly as well, I'm not sure. But, you know, the, the hex-based tile system, there's probably a good 50 tiles that you're searching for just two in particular. Or, oh, wow. And there are other dungeons sometimes within the tiles that can be multi-screened. So, um, it seems a little random as to who will find it first. But what I like about this game is that there's a lot of graphics and not a lot of text, not a lot of inputs you need to worry about. It tells you the directions that you can move on screen at all time. It kind of uses this like kind of clock based system or if you want to go north, it's the, it's the number one and like northwest is number two. It tells you all six for the six directions you could possibly go. So that's on screen at all times. And then when you go into a new tile, there's really not much that you can do. It just like happens. So maybe you go into a dungeon or you find gold. Um, or you find an item. If you find any items, they just get automatically equipped. So there's no inventory management or anything. And then when you go into combat, which is a big part of the game, it's the same combat that, like, I think uh, it was Jedi Knight had, where you just hold, like, you're supposed to hit a button as soon as the animations, like, can be played, right? But you could just hold the button down and it right. plays it on yeah. the first frame. <laughs> um that's the combat so essentially combat is you hold down the t button and then things die but weirdly enough a lot of the enemies i guess also will throw their attacks on the first frame so you get a lot of instances where you will get hit and the opponent will get hit at the same time if that's really not a problem if you have armor and high level weapons because you'll just destroy them but uh in the beginning of the game it can be an issue luckily your character has like let's say 200 health and the enemies are like 30 or 40 health so you, it's really hard to die in the game and your health will slowly regenerate when you're outside of combat so pretty much what happens is like if you fight a lot you have to just not explore for a while to regain that health back and that's an opportunity i guess for your opponent to uh explore but again it's, it's random you, like when you go to a new tile you don't know that an enemy will be there and when you go on to a tile, there can be multiple enemies on that tile. And again, you don't know until you visit it. And so you can have a battle where you fight like an ogre and then you kill it. And then it's like, there's also a wraith here. And then you fight again and it can go up to eight or nine enemies that you have to fight all in a row before you're done. <laughs> and I could see that killing you essentially because you, ha you can't run between the fights or do anything else. So... That's always a risk, but I think it is kind of rare for that to happen. There's probably a couple tiles on the map where there's that many enemies together. Usually it's just one or two. So all in all, it's, it's a very interesting game. I think the graphics are really good. When you're in combat, you see yourself, you know, with a sword kind of throwing these slashes out and, and jabs out. 
and you see the enemies and there's different uh, sprites for all the enemies from race to ogres to the dragon and they all have different attacks and um, all the attacks have like two or three different like sprites for their to make a very rudimentary animation. So the graphics are really good. There's an overworld map that's this hex based thing and there's rivers on it and forests on it and the mountains on it. So it just looks amazing. But when you actually think about the gameplay, it's like go to a random tile, something random happens, hold down the T button. That's, that's it. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, yeah. There's really nothing else. So it's kind of hard to say. Like, I don't think the gameplay is good, but it's very interesting. And I think it has a lot of good ideas or that if the combat was fleshed out a little bit more, if you could somehow predict what was going to be on those tiles in front of you. It would have been way better, but um, as it is, it's uh, it's just all right. So let me get into my ratings. Now that I've talked about it for gameplay. I did give it a two point two five out of ten. As I mentioned, some things I really like, some things I don't. I think the general concept of find an elf and a dwarf and then go slay a dragon is cool enough. The combat, while very boring, and you just hit a button the whole time. It's still a lot more entertaining than it just being in text, which is what we're used to. Uh, and saying, like, you've been hit, you hit, you've been hit. <laughs> you can actually see it on the screen and see that, like, sometimes you're faster and you actually see you hitting them faster. So that's nice. And uh, when you kill something, they have, like, little death animations and stuff. When you fight the dragon, he doesn't attack you with a sword, he attacks you with his fire breath. Like, it, there's so many cooler things that you can see and it all affects the gameplay and how interested you are in continuing to play. So I think because of the other points of the game being so strong and the fact that it is meant to be played as a two player game and there could be some very fun swings to it that I, I rated it fairly highly, despite the fact that it is just hold like the T button to fight <laughs> the rest of the game is just so interesting. So I gave a 2.25 there. For graphics, I gave that a 2.75 because I think the graphics are really good. It's on the Apple II and there is color graphics and uh, sprites that are moving and have animations. Like when you're fighting, your guy literally just looks like a gladiator with a big sword and he's really well detailed and the enemies look really good as well. I think the dragon, I mean, the dragon looks a little small like he's like six foot tall <laughs> but uh could be a baby dragon you know yeah baby dragon he just <laughs> looks really good though i think all the sprites look really nice and the overworld map so nice to have an overworld map and see your character move from tile to tile to see a uh, river on the map and mountains on the map and forests and a castle and bridges it's a very nice detailed map so I appreciated the graphics that were there. They're not totally amazing, but I think they're about as good as we've seen on the Apple II up to this point. So I, I liked them a lot. Uh, for sound effects, there's actually sound effects in this game and a fair amount of them. Uh, most of them are pretty much just beeps and bops, but they happen pretty often. And there's definitely different ones that mean different things from getting hit to actually killing an enemy to moving on the map. They all sound a little bit different. And they keep you uh, 
interested in the game because at least it's like beeping at you and reminding you that you are playing a game not just holding a button down for the combat and stuff <laughs> right. yeah <laughs> so um they're nothing special but they do add a lot so i give it a one and a half out of ten for sound And for relevance, I gave this a six and a half out of 10. I don't think it's super relevant. Um, it's by a company that we're not going to see too often called Microlab, but it does get re-released by, I believe, um, Sierra, um, who's a much larger company. So Sierra Online. So like, I think people will see this game and I'm mostly giving it rating because of the hex-based tile system, which I think we're going to see a lot. I thought we would see it in a strategy game first, but it's actually an RPG, which is cool. So it's a very interesting way of doing the graphics, and, and I think it will be popular. I'm sure there are a lot of board games at this time that use the system. So I wanted to give it a little bit of points there uh, for using that system that we haven't really seen before. And overall, I gave it a 2 out of 10. It's pretty good, but... The combat is really holds it back and the random nature of exploring the map really holds it back. The one thing that's interesting about playing against the AI, luckily the AI turns don't like you don't see them. I guess they do that to speed the game along because you otherwise you'd sit there and, and just watch them fight things and stuff. Right. Yeah. Uh, but it does mean like half of the screen is their part of the map and nothing ever happens there because you can't go there and the ai is not really moving around because you can't like they're not doing i think they're doing it in the background obviously but it kind of feels weird like you can only play half the screen <laughs> but uh when you fight something luckily the whole map goes away and it becomes full screen but again even if like you're in a dungeon it'll be only for your half of the screen so it's kind of weird in one player so there's some things that has wrong with it i think but the graphics are phenomenal i think the gameplay is very unique for what it is i like the lore behind it and the general goal of the game uh it has sound effects that are unique and for specific instant like uh, circumstances so that's really nice so it's a very mixed bag but i think overall it's, it's quite good so i'm actually going to give it 2.25 out of 10 i i think it's i think it's worth that so oh yeah Changing the ratings live. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I thought. What do you think, cool. Wes? This is kind of a weird one. Oh, it is, but I don't know. It's, it's very cool. Just unique, you know? I agree with you. I really yeah. like the, um, the setup for the story. Like, it feels a little bit cliched, but just like two disgraced sons fighting for the crown. It sounds very yeah. fun. <laughs> uh, and I love the... I looked up a few of the, like, goofy enemy sprites and... They're kind of ridiculous, but because they make them take up, you know, like it goes full screen and they're pretty big, everything is mm -hmm. so well detailed. Uh, I love it. Yeah, and I think one thing I wasn't expecting is I thought going into this, it would be a strategy game because all I saw was the hex-based map. Yeah. And I thought, oh my god, it's going to take forever to, to figure out how to play the game. <laughs> but it's really easy to pick up and there's really no problems with like the parser part of it at all it's pretty much all graphic based so um, yeah it's always good that part is really nice so that was a nice good surprise for me
uh, made it easy to play. Cool. Uh, uh, let's move on, Wes. We got a couple of other computer ones here. Yeah, so we have the 80 Microcomputing Magazine, uh, which is a new magazine for us. This is the August issue, of course, and there was nothing of note in January, which uh, January through July is started of uh, January this year. But this is the special games issue. I uh, had many other games that were clones of stuff, but three that we did want to mention. Uh, the first one is Swords and Sorcery 2 by Barry Adams, who notably isn't the author of Swords and Sorcery 1. <laughs> Uh, yeah. This is an expanded version of Swords and Sorcery, which included more graphics and additional monsters. Uh, this was sort of like a RPG-ish game where you go around different tiles of the map, fight stuff, get loot, and level up, if I remember right. I think you had to... I could be wrong, but I think you had to find an orb or something in that one. I don't know. Yes, Maybe yeah. They're all. Uh, they're all combining in my head they do start to melt together yeah <laughs> um but the next one in uh this 80 microcomputing magazine for august is uh called starfighter by albert ferreira and it's a first person starship combat game we've seen lots of these but this one had some interesting sound effects and missile systems plus the enemies were allowed to run away which i thought was kind of an interesting take on it <laughs> but uh because it's just in the magazine we weren't able to play this one and then the last one for this magazine was called A Heartbeat Away by Clinton Morey. And it's a simulation of the 1964 U.S. Panama crisis where you play as the U.S. president. Sounds stressful, but, you know, it's at least an interesting historical sort of snippet there. I feel like they could just be making that up, Wes. I don't remember learning about the Panama crisis in high school. Neither do I. And it does just say the U.S. president instead of... Lyndon B. Johnson, who I looked up, was the president <laughs> then. So maybe it's a fake scenario. Maybe me and Ben just don't I know our it, history. <laughs> yeah, I think it's probably real. But <laughs> if it's fake, it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> uh, but now let's move on to the second game that I got to review today. It is called Wizard and the Princess by Sierra Online, who we just mentioned, uh, aka at this point, they're just called Online Systems, but they're going to be a big company down the line and eventually change their name to Sierra. But this came out on the Apple II, and it is the second entry in the High Res Adventures series, the first of which was Mystery House, which Ben covered the first like real graphic text adventure with good visuals. Mm -hmm. Notably, though, Mystery House was wireframe and uh, sort of black and white with some, I think, maybe a couple of the little purplish things that Apple II had in the lines, but no real color there. In this version, even though the Apple II can only display six colors, it was in all color and they used a combination of different colored pixels next to each other to give the illusion of new colors too and that's sort of a, a phenomenon that's called dithering so through that there were only six colors they could display but they put a whole bunch of colors and the illusion of more colors in this game which is pretty exciting <laughs> but the setup for this game some more fun backstory is that princess priscilla was captured by the evil wizard harlan and is being kept 
in his castle. And basically you have to bring her back. And if you bring her back, the king will give you half the kingdom. <laughs> okay. Which, I don't know which half, but we'll see when we get there. Um, <laughs> and like Mystery House, the game was designed by Roberta Williams and developed by Ken Williams. Apparently for Mystery House, uh, Ken Williams kind of wanted to get into it the more like practical business software business and so they made mystery house as a side thing but after mystery house did so well they were both like oh let's make another one and actually devote like all of our time to this because it's some good money <laughs> and probably mm -hmm. fun too but the setting for the game is the kingdom of serenia which apparently is going to pop up in a sierra point and click series later down the line called king's quest uh, so we'll definitely be talking about that when that comes along. The gameplay for Wizard and the Princess, though, is just a classic text adventure where you enter commands in conjunction with objects in the environment. Um, and of course, since this is visual, it has the benefit of not having to describe everything to you. You could see a stick on screen and hit grab stick to get it, which is nice. And you have to use all these things that you collect in your inventory to solve puzzles. So classic sort of thing. I do like, though, that it is not a collect the treasure text adventure. It's saving the princess. It's a, uh, I don't know, I, I like that goal. It's a bit different. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's also some of the fun things we've seen in other text adventures, like magic words that do fun things when you type them into the parser and you kind of have to find them as you explore the game. Also, though, interestingly, there's no inventory limit, which is something I know it's a challenge to some people, but I just don't like it. Let me carry all the junk that I find. <laughs> and this game does it. So I'm very happy. Yep. But that's really all there is to the gameplay. So I have a lot to talk about in my ratings. Let's get started with graphics. That's the big one. We're talking about a graphical text adventure. Seems like a bit of an oxymoron, but they're out there. I gave this a 3 out of 10. It's a text adventure with really good graphics, which is great to see. It's got a graphical style similar to Mystery House, which is to say it's kind of goofy and looks a bit like a kid's drawing at some point. Not that I could do any better. It's what it would probably look like if I did those. Uh, it would probably look worse. So <laughs> it does not to say it looks bad, but you know, it's just got like this kind of cartoony kids sort of vibe to it which i like but then of course it's also colored in with a nice variety of colors thanks to the dithering one of the main areas you're in is a desert and they use orange dots in conjunction with white dots to make it kind of this nice like sandy yellow checkerboard pattern and it has a nice enough resolution that it doesn't look like a gigantic checkerboard but those colors do sort of blend together so those colors all look nice and they use that all over the place to give a bunch of different shades of colors. The items show up on screen, which of course I love, and you can interact with them. And you can usually tell which items can be interacted with because their colors kind of stick out from the environment. Also like Mystery House, I love that the items disappear when you pick them up or monsters run away when you do whatever the correct thing for the puzzle is and they disappear from the map. Um, it's just very cool. There's even a snake that you kill at the beginning that, you know, redrills the screen and the snake is now dead with X's in his eyes. You know, it's just small stuff like that, that 
in my opinion, maybe just because I'm a very visual person, text adventures were missing. You know, I can't mm-hmm. see that I released a canary to peck out the dragon's eyes or whatever it is that happens in Colossal Cave Adventure. But in this, I can see that I threw a rock and it hit a snake and killed it. <laughs> that seems a little... Why'd you do that, Wes? I don't know. I walked around that snake. <laughs> it's like the first puzzle you come across. And it's hilarious because the desert all around you is like an endless maze. But the snake is somehow guarding the only way north, even though you're in this gigantic empty desert. So <laughs> you have to smash the poor thing with a rock. <laughs> but back to the graphics, even though they're a little cartoonish, like uh, the four-legged scorpions that you run across, uh, it just looks so much better than anything we've seen in a text adventure so far. The colors are great. Even though it has to draw in the screen every single time, it's pretty fast, so I didn't mind it. Uh, and I just loved how it looked. The idea of, you know, basically creating the like predecessor to a point and click adventure where it's like, I see thing on screen, I interact with it, uh, is very neat. So I was super excited to do that. Sounds though, totally opposite side of the spectrum. There's no sounds in this. So <laughs> zero out of 10, unfortunately. Let's move on to gameplay though uh it's no secret that i'm not the biggest fan of text adventures but i did end up giving this a two out of ten because i think the graphics really do help me like this kind of game you know it's much easier to figure out those puzzles when i can see hey this is a snake hey this is a rock i'm supposed to do something with these but then there are the negatives of this It is a classic text adventure in the sense that there are some annoying puzzles and many instant deaths. Um, I like the idea of going to rescue a princess over collecting treasures. It's much more engaging than a lot of the other text adventures, but I didn't get that far because the first puzzle you run into is, you know, you see the snake, like I described, you have to find a way to get past it, which is to find a rock which is, means you have to wander this seemingly endless desert maze to find a rock to kill a snake. And finding the rock isn't the problem, as it turns out, because every single screen almost has rock on it. But if you pick the rock up and it has a scorpion behind it, you instantly die. <laughs> so then you have to look at every single rock and examine it after you go onto the screen. It'll say there's a scorpion behind it, and then you go to the next screen and keep looking until you find a rock without a scorpion. On the last attempt that I did, I think it took me about seven minutes and at least 15 rocks checked before I found one (laughs) without a scorpion. And then I had to somehow find my way back to the snake through the desert maze thing. I just really didn't like that part of it. (laughs) As many other people who played this game didn't either. It was so frustrating when the game first released that when they re-released it, they included hints specifically for this puzzle. Uh, I think they realized (laughs) that making this the first puzzle of their game probably wasn't a good idea. (laughs) But I do want to say, after solving that puzzle, the game does get a lot more interesting. Uh, But unfortunately, the instant deaths kind of killed it for me. I got past that point a couple of times, got to some fun stuff. But then I died instantly and had to redo the desert over again. 
I will say though, my experience might be a bit skewed because I think there was a save feature in this game. I just couldn't figure out how to get that working in the emulator. Uh, Got to mess around with those save states next time. So the gameplay, I wasn't a huge fan of it, but there definitely are some cool ideas in here, some interesting puzzles, a lot of the classic stuff we've seen before. So it's not that bad. I just, I'm ready for the day when I can save scum or they take instant deaths out of these games. <laughs> <laughs> and I do want to say, after reading through a lot of the stuff that happens in the rest of the game, I got to give it props for some fun puzzles where you have to turn into different types of animals using different items. Uh, for instance, early on, you learn the magic word that turns you into a snake, and you can use that to like crawl between small spaces, uh, which I don't know if we've really seen something like that before. It's pretty neat. Now let's move on to relevance. I gave this a 7.5 out of 10. It's the first full color text adventure we've ever played. And it's pretty awesome. And the fact that it sets up the world, the backstory for another game that Sierra is going to come out with later down the line, I think is also pretty sweet. So fairly relevant there. And I'm hoping we'll see a lot more of this in the future. And so overall, that left me with a 2 out of 10. Wizard and the Princess has a fun theme, great visuals for a text adventure, along with some fun puzzles and a lot of not-so-fun puzzles, unfortunately. <laughs> I think really the lack of sound is still hurting this category so much. We're finally getting the ones with good graphics. Just give me some sounds in there, and man, this uh, I'm going to be excited to play text adventures. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. It's so weird because, like, the pictures do look like they were drawn by a child, yeah. but the graphics are using these colors I've never seen before on the Apple II. <laughs> yeah. So different from everything else for it. Even their last graphical text adventure game was wireframed uh, graphics, and this is all filled in with color. It's so much better. Yeah, it's just so, so vibrant. Uh, definitely better than anything I think I've seen on the Apple II visually. Yeah. So I'm excited to see where this goes, see what they do next, because I think they're going to do more of this. Very excited. Um, but with that, we are going to wrap it up. We have one more to talk about real quick. It's called Monty Plays Monopoly by Ritam Corporation. It came out sometime in 1980 for the Apple II. And it's a graphical version of Monopoly with very strange cutscenes involving <laughs> like a weird guy in a top hat talking to you. And it is a full color graphics. But you still had to partially play with a real board, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. But that will wrap it up for us today. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. We uh, covered the end of the Supervision 8000, uh, one more console behind us, and uh, a lot more in front of us. But um, it always feels good to be kind of wrapped up with one. So um, we finished that one. We also talked about the Astrocade. Dog Patch is the only game that came out in 1980 for the Astrocade because of the weird selling of the system by Bally. And um, I also took a look at Crown of Arthane, which was a hex-based RPG with a lot of very unique mechanics and uh, cool visuals. So that one was actually very different from what I thought going into it, but it was really good. And then what West did Wizard and the Princess by Sierra, their second big adventure. Definitely looking forward to their third 
I'm not sure what the theme is for it, but I'm sure it will be cool. So I'm sure we'll cover it as well because they are selling a lot of these right now and are big in the scene. So we have to. <laughs> Absolutely. And make sure to check out our website because we've got info on tons of other games there. You can see, for instance, the evolution of text adventures uh, and see some of the stuff that we've covered in that genre. Also, make sure to follow us on Twitter where we post announcements. And if you have any questions, make sure to send us an email. And with that, we'll catch you next time. See you all next time.